You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. begin reading at verse 17. We'll read through the end of verse 27 of John 11. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Let's pray before we begin. Our great God, we are thankful for Your Word, and we pray that You would produce in us through Your Word a reverence for You and for Your Word, that You would establish Your Word to us, that You would open our eyes and our hearts to behold in Your Word wonderful things, and that You would be glorified here through our study. Be our teacher and our guide here, and may Your Word perform its work in our hearts to sanctify us, to edify us, and equip us for works of service. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to be willing. To, I would be willing to bet, and I'm going to guess that everybody here has attended at least one funeral. Some of you probably have attended a number of funerals. As a pastor, I have had the uh, wouldn't use the word joy because funerals aren't really enjoyable. But I have had the role of officiating at quite a number of funerals. And uh, just for the record, I don't enjoy doing funerals. That doesn't mean that I don't ask that you would ever request that I do them. I am happy to do funerals for people, but funerals themselves are not enjoyable for me. They can be joyful, but they're not enjoyable. There's nothing about a funeral that when I get a call from the funeral director, I see it come up on my caller ID and I say, all right, got a funeral this week. I see it coming. I can't wait to hear who has died. There's nothing about doing the service itself, which is necessary, elicits joy. But for Christians, particularly Christian funerals, they can be full of things that produce in us joy. Um, I have done funerals for people that I have never met and do not know, and I've done funerals for people that not only have I never met them and don't know them, but I don't know anybody in the building. I don't know the family, don't know the friends. And yet I have also done funerals for people that I know very well from among our own body. I even officiated at my own grandmother's funeral, which is a very difficult thing to do uh, because I knew her so well and I loved her so much and did that funeral. I have done funerals where the funeral home is packed full of people. And I did one funeral where there were four people in the building. That included the funeral director and myself. Two people showed up. Now, you you try preparing a a message (laughs) and preaching a message with any kind of excitement whatsoever to two people sitting in the front row and the funeral director standing at the back going, I don't know. That, That is awkward to say the least. I have done funerals and I've shown up to do funerals where I am persona non grata. Now, I think that that is a Spanish word, Ed could tell us, that means basically I am unwelcome. 
I am the necessary evil in the eyes of the people who have I'm there to do the funeral for. Uh, I did one funeral, and I'll tell you this story. I'm hoping that I have never told this story from the pulpit before, but I know I've shared this personally to a few folks. Uh, I did a funeral where the funeral director called me up, and he needed somebody to do the funeral for somebody that I didn't know. I didn't know them. I didn't know the family. Never even heard of them. They were not a religious family whatsoever, but he called me up, and he said, look, I'm, I'm desperate. No other pastor wants to do this. I think he had called through everybody else in the phone book. He got to OS, got my name, called me. If your name comes before mine in the phone book, you probably got the call too. Will you do the funeral service? He finally got to me and said, will you do it? I said, sure, I'll do it. And he said, now listen, when you show up to do this funeral, it's just the gravesite. It's not the service at the funeral home. But here's the key. You need to keep this very, very short. And I said, okay, it's graveside. Normally graveside services are short. I've done funerals uh, for gravesides for this particular funeral home in the past, and Graveside services are normally just a couple of minutes, and I do a quick little thing and a prayer, and, and that's it. That's the shortest part of the whole the whole day is the graveside part. I said, sure, I'll keep it short, so I got some details. The next day, I called, a, I called him back and spoke to an employee there who was not the one I talked to the day before, just to confirm some things, give them some information, get some more information from them. And, and I said, do you, should I call the family and arrange to meet with them or see them before the service? No. Just show up. And I don't know if my dad mentioned this or not, but when you show up to do the service, you need to keep this very short. Did he mention that? And I said, yeah, he did mention that. You want to, you care to share with me why I'm supposed to keep this service short? Why shortness and brevity is the order of the day? And he said, well, this particular family had a funeral service a couple months ago, or maybe it was the previous summer. And it was at a graveside, and it was in full sunlight, and it was 100 degrees outside. Everybody was miserable, and the pastor preached for an hour at the graveside service. And half the family left in protest before the service was even up and the pastor just kept on talking. So the family has requested that whoever we have do this, that you keep it short. I said, short, got it. Day of the funeral is about 80 degrees out, pretty warm day, middle of the summer. Uh, I showed up there, gravesite was in the full sun. And as I pulled up, you know the guy who's normally out front directing traffic saying, you park here, you park there, go around there, etc. I showed up and rolled down my window, we chatted a little bit, we talked before he knew me. And uh, he said, I don't know if they mentioned it or not, but you're going to want to, <laughs> you already see this coming. You're going to want to keep this service really short. And I said, they mentioned it. I got, the, I got the memo. Thanks. And I went up and parked and I walked up and it was a hot day out there and it was warm out and everybody was obviously warm. But the one thing that was not warm was the welcome for the preacher boy. And everybody stood there glaring at me as if I had killed the person in the casket and I was there to do the service. And uh, there was one family from our church who was there that day, and I saw them standing there, and I walked up, and they needed somebody to talk to who was even remotely friendly. And so I was chatting with them and getting close to time to start the service, and they said, Jim, I don't know if anybody said this to you or not. I'm not exaggerating. He said, with this family, you are going to want to keep this really short. And I started to get the feeling that they were telling me this, not out of concern for the family, but out of concern for my own well-being. And I said, I got it short. So I got up, I gave five sentences, and this is no exaggeration. After the person sang the song and somebody else read a poem, I said, we are here today because of sin, or because of death. Death is the result of sin. Every individual here has sinned and will be judged by God, which is evidenced by the fact that everybody standing around this graveside today is going to die at some point in your life. And if you do not have an atonement for your sin, you will face the wrath of God for your sin. Because everybody here is a liar, a thief, and a blasphemer. 
But God has done something whereby you can be forgiven of your sin. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world who was God in human flesh. He died on a cross. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. And if you will repent of your sin and trust Christ for salvation, he will forgive your sin and grant you everlasting life. Let's pray. Now, that's a bit longer than what I actually said that day. I kind of shortened it down from that. But that's what I did. That I have had some awkward funerals. Funerals for Christians can be very joyous occasions. Have you noticed that? And funerals for unbelievers can be very depressing. I was at a funeral. They didn't do this funeral. I was at a funeral recently for somebody who was who had warred against God and against man for his whole life, all the way up to the day of his death. And when he died, the family wanted a distinctly non-religious funeral because this was a non-religious man. So the funeral director got up and he started talking about all of the things that had happened during this person's life. And this person was in the military and this person lived to see the bypass and this person lived to see this and uh, color television. Now we have cell phones. It's all about the stuff that has happened in the lifetime of this individual. And I sat there and, and without a word of consolation, I have no word of consolation, no word of hope, no word of encouragement, nothing to look forward to in the future. No gospel was presented. And I got to the end of that funeral service, and this is honestly what ran through my mind. I thought to myself, if I was an unbeliever and I was sitting here and I believed the unbelieving, what the unbelieving believe, that there is nothing after this grave and that this, this, it's just nothing. I would walk out of here and go get drunk and put a gun in my mouth and end it all. And then I have done funerals for believers, many of whom have come from our own congregation, just to name a few. Do you remember uh, Don Morton and John Ambrose and uh, Bud Schaefer, uh, Harvey Brothers? And if I'm missing somebody, I'm not trying to slight anybody, but folks from our own congregation who have died. And then we, we get together at a funeral service and we have, what is it? It's really a celebration because it's it's hope. There is for the believer hope after the grave. And Christian funerals are an odd mixture of hope mingled with grief. In fact, Scripture says that. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. It's okay to grieve, and we grieve because we experience a very real loss. And so we have suffered a loss. There's been a tragedy. Death reminds us that there is sin, that all of this is the consequences of sin. And so that vexes our heart. But at the same time, we mourn, but not like those who are hopeless. Not like the irreligious individual who all we can talk about is the fact they live to see the bypass as if that is some great accomplishment. But we mourn as those who have a hope that there is life beyond this grave, something far greater than this, a consolation and encouragement that an unbeliever simply does not have. And it is that strange mixture of both grief and hope that is present at the gravesite of Lazarus. There is grief here in this chapter, real grief, real weeping, real mourning, but there is also a statement of tremendous hope of life after the grave that Martha confesses to Jesus when she says, I know that he will rise again, on the last day, in the general resurrection. So we're in, in John chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 17. We're going to go through the end of verse 24 today. We're not going to get to verse 25 and 26. We're going to save that for next time we are together. That is the fifth, the I am the resurrection and the life. That is the fifth of seven I am statements in John's gospel. And we have looked at uh, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, I am the door to the sheep, I am the good shepherd, and now I am the resurrection and the life. So we're going to look at verses 17 through 24, which sort of sets the stage for this monumental declaration and doctrine that Jesus gives in verses 25 and 26. So beginning in verse 27, So when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now the four days is a significant number. It's mentioned also in verse 39 when Jesus said to them, Roll away the stone. And Martha protested and said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. So John mentions not only that it was four days, but there is a reason, I believe, why John, why John indicates that it's been four days since Lazarus had died. Now, the chronology of what has transpired here is a little bit hard for us to sort of pin down. 
For this reason, we don't know how many days it took for the messengers to get from Bethany to Perea where Jesus was at. We do know that Jesus stayed two days in Perea after he received the news that Lazarus was sick from the messengers. At the end of that two days, that's when Jesus said, Lazarus is dead and we're going to go so that I may awaken him from sleep and this is going to happen so that you, the disciples, may believe. We do know that there was two days, but then we don't know how long it took for Jesus to get from Perea to Bethany. So some have suggested that the four days would look something like this. The messengers left and took one day to get from Bethany to Perea. And they told Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Then Jesus stayed two days in Perea before returning to Bethany, and then one day for Jesus to go from Perea back into Bethany. So that's the four days. That might be, but that means that Lazarus would have had to die right after the messengers left for him to, for that to happen. And in that culture, remember that people died and they were buried immediately. It wasn't like today where we embalm a corpse and then refrigerate a corpse. When you are in the desert region, like the nation of Israel, in that arid region was nice and warm all day long and all night long. You don't let corpses lay around for days while you wait for the family to show up for the viewing. Somebody would die and they would hurry up and they would bury them almost immediately. Remember that's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira when Ananias died? They drug him out of the door and into a hole, and they buried him immediately. They buried, he was buried, and the dust had settled before uh, Sapphira even found out that her husband had died. And then when she died, when she was struck dead, they drug her out and buried her that same day as, as well. That was the custom. So whatever the case, we don't know what it is, but whatever the case, we know that by the time Jesus waited the two days, Lazarus had been dead. Maybe Lazarus died, Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, we need to return, and then he took four days to get to Bethany. Whatever the case... When they did get back to Bethany, Lazarus had been in the funeral, in the funeral home. <laughs> I got a funeral home on the head. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now, why does John tell us four days? What is significant about the four days? There was a belief common among the Jews that after death, the spirit hovered around the body for three days trying to re-enter it. After the third day, on the fourth day, when the body began to show signs of decomposition and began to smell and stink and the signs of decomposition were evident, that's when they believed that the spirit would depart and leave and that returning to life was impossible. So that now that's not a biblical belief, that is a Jewish belief from their culture. So keep that in mind. So that's what the Jews believe. So why does John say that this is the fourth day? Is it any more of a miracle really for Jesus to raise somebody on the fourth day than on the first day? Couldn't Jesus have timed it to show up on the first day? Lazarus dead and they're wrapping him up, about ready to exit the home and take him to the grave and Jesus shows up. Couldn't Jesus have timed it that way? Couldn't Jesus have timed it to show up on the second day or the third day? Why intentionally in the plan of God and in the providence of Christ and His direction of these events, why did He wait until the fourth day? We're going to find out later on that there were Jews present at this at this graveside. They had come out of Jerusalem to Mary and Martha to console them. So there are a number of people sitting around watching this miracle unfold. I think that one of the reasons that Jesus waited to the fourth day was in order to demonstrate to the Jews that long after they believed resurrection was possible, he was still the resurrection and the life. They would have believed after the decomposition began that the Spirit departed and resurrection was impossible. And so they would have said, on the fourth day, only God can raise the dead on the fourth day. Only God can raise the dead on the fourth day. So why did Jesus wait till the fourth day? The same reason he did miracles on the Sabbath. Like the man in chapter 5 who had been uh, crippled for 38 years. Couldn't he have waited another day and Jesus have healed him on the next day and not the Sabbath? Why did Jesus intentionally heal people on the Sabbath? Because he wanted the Jews to learn something about him 
that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. That He's God. Every healing on the Sabbath was evidence to the Jews that the one doing the healing on the Sabbath was Lord of the Sabbath and that He could do anything He wanted on the Sabbath without violating the Sabbath because He was God incarnate. The resurrection of Lazarus on the fourth day is for the very same reason. Not the first, not the second, not the third, but on the fourth, so as to demonstrate when they saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, the individual who has done this, only God can do this. Therefore, this man is what? Is God. That was the reason for the fourth day. Now look at verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. John tells us that for a reason. One of the reasons is to remind us that Jesus, when he came from Perea back into Bethany, he came very close to where he had to flee at the end of chapter 10 because of the danger of being stoned for his claims of blasphemy. So keep in mind, he has just told the Jews he is God. He has gone away into the wilderness. Now he has come back right into the midst of these very people whom he has declared his deity to. They had picked up stones to stone him, and he is right back in their presence again in Bethany, only two miles away. Another reason that John tells us it was only two miles outside of Jerusalem is to explain why there were Jews who had come, verse 19. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now that's kind of an interesting notation, that there were some Jews from Jerusalem who had come out to console Martha and Mary. When John uses the term the Jews throughout his gospel, who is he usually speaking of? He is usually not just describing people of ethnic Jewish descent. John uses the term the Jews almost exclusively in his gospel to describe people who were hostile to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who opposed him and the religious leaders of the nation. Now I ask you this question, why would the religious leaders of the nation come out of Jerusalem, the Jews, as John calls them, to console Martha and Mary? That is possibly an indication that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were part of a wealthy and influential and notable family in the region. The religious leaders of the nation did not go out into the countryside to to mourn the death of every country bumpkin, every unknown person who passed away in the environs of Jerusalem. But the Jews, the religious leaders from the nation, would come out to console a family whom they knew well, whom they were close to, a wealthy family and an influential family who had lost a brother. There is, by the way, another indication that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were wealthy individuals Uh, possibly wealthy individuals. I can't say this for certain, but there are indications. This is one of them. The other one is in chapter 12, verse 3. When Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, just so we get the order of that right, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? You know how much 300 denarii is? 300 denarii is a year's wages. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I do not have a year's wages worth of perfume lying around my house. I don't have a year's wages worth of anything lying around my house. You could sell both my vehicles and it wouldn't be a year's wages. What are they doing with a year's wages worth of very expensive perfume lying around their house? Likely, very possibly, a wealthy, influential powerful family living outside of Jerusalem that the religious leaders knew. And so they come out now from the perspective of men, from the human perspective, they're coming out just to console the family. This is another death, another friend of the family. They're coming out to console them. But from the divine perspective, they're coming out for what? They're coming out to witness a miracle. See, God is directing all of this. Jesus had just told these same people in the city of Jerusalem, I have to ask myself, 
Are these the same Jews then that are mentioned in chapter 5 when Jesus claimed that there would be a day when he, the Son of Man, would speak and the dead would come out of their tombs? Are these the same Jews who heard the divine Son discourse? Are these the same Jews who, who heard him in chapter 8 claim to be the great I Am that are now going to hear him claim to be the resurrection and the life? Are these the same Jews who at the end of chapter 10 had picked up stones to stone him in the temple because they heard him say, I and the Father are one? Are these the same Jews? It's very possible that these are the ones who heard him all the way through that, who heard all of this. They have seen the miracles. They know of the man born blind. They have persecuted him. They have picked up stones on more than one occasion to stone him. They have tried to seize him. They are plotting his murder. And then you get to the end of chapter, we get to the end of verse 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. So there are obviously some of these Jews who have come out of Jerusalem who have witnessed this, and now they're going back, right back to the Pharisees, and they're telling the council of the Pharisees what has happened. Because these are hostile men. And even though they have seen what is now the greatest miracle that they have seen Jesus do to date, the resurrection of Lazarus, they are still returning hostile and unbelieving. I think it's the same Jews that we have been reading about all the way through chapter 5, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and now into chapter 11. The same ones who have received light after light after light and who have responded with unbelief after unbelief after unbelief and hardened hearts toward the claims of Christ. So look at verse 20. Oh, one last thing about these who have come out of Jerusalem. This was a common thing for the Jews. Let me explain to you a little bit about the Jewish burial customs and the Jewish uh, custom of mourning. As I said, it was customary for them to bury the dead the same day that they died. They didn't wait overnight. They didn't embalm the corpse. They put them right into the ground or right into a tomb. Uh, another custom was to have a period of mourning after the, after the death of the loved one that would last 30 to 40 days, depending on what type of mourning that they wanted to do. So uh, it was... According to Alfred Edersheim in his sketches of Jewish social life, this 30-day period of mourning was divided into three, three periods of time. The first three days was intense grieving and weeping, just mourning and weeping and wailing and for three days. After that, to fill out the first seven days, after three days, they would have the rest of that first week would be just a time of mourning when they would, they would sit and they would mourn and they would recognize the grief and people would come and comfort them. And then after the seventh day, for the rest of that 30 days, it was sort of a lighter mourning a lighter time of mourning, less intense mourning, but still observing the death and observing the mourning process. So this will go on for a month. Now, as an aside note, I think sometimes we could have a little bit to learn from that. Sometimes it's good to grieve and work through that process. I don't know if I need 30 days to do that, but we certainly need more than what we tend to take, right? We get done, we have the dinner, let's go on with life. Sometimes it's good to just observe the grief for a bit. Um, that that can get out of hand real quickly. But the Jews, they would observe that grief for a bit. Another thing that they would do is, once the body left the house to go to the tomb, they would take all of the furniture in the house and they would turn the furniture up against the walls, so the seated part was against the walls, so that you couldn't sit on anything inside the house. Then they would take all of the beds, they would take the beds down and put the beds on the floor, and they would spend that month of time on the floor, sitting on the floor, laying on the floor, sleeping on the floor. That is why we read in verse 29 when Jesus calls Mary... And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Because that's what they would have done four days ago. They would have had no place to sit. Do you remember what Job did? What did Job do when he mourned? He sat down in ashes. right? And then when his friends came, what did his friends do? They sat down with him. That's the Jewish way of mourning. There was nothing to sit on. They sat in the dirt. They sat in the ground. That's how they observed their grief. Now, look at verse 20. When Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming... She went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, this is kind of an interesting distinction between these two women. Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, I ask you this question. Is there anything significant in the different response of these two women? It is in keeping with what we 
Observe in these two women from Luke chapter 10 when Jesus is in their home. And you remember the different activities that they were involved with? Martha, she was up and busy and doing the preparation, exercising hospitality and make sure everything was going well and the food and everything on the table. And what did Mary do? She just sat at Jesus' feet and listened. Now, Martha is the, the busy one. She's the goal setter, the achiever. She's the one that's got all the structure and the organized. Mary, she is the type of person that drives me nuts, the contemplative uh, thoughtful, just sort of sit and soak it in type of individual. I'm more like a Martha than I am like a Mary, but i got to tolerate the Marys in my life, so don't be offended. But that's what you see in those two people, Luke chapter 10. Same thing here. Jesus is coming. So what does Mary do? He'll get here eventually. Just sit here, and when He shows up, I'll sit here with Him, and we'll talk about Lazarus. She's willing to just wait until Jesus comes. No sense getting up and getting busy with it. But what about Martha? Oh, Jesus is coming. Well... We've got preparations to do. We've got stuff we have to do. We have goals to set. We have agendas to keep. We have a schedule to do. we got this to do. we got to, we got to make sure he's got something to eat, some place to sleep. She's well, she's, she goes out, and this is just typical Martha, she goes out to meet Jesus. Now, you would, you would not believe the volumes that have been written on the responses of these two women just in this passage. And I'm not going to speculate any further than just to say it's sort of in keeping with what we know of them from other passages of Scripture. But what is significant is the similarity of their response. Look what Mary says in verse, or sorry, Martha says in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now look down at verse 32. When Martha, when Mary shows up, she came to where Jesus was and saw him and fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you notice that their response is identical? Now you can imagine that these two women had sat around and they had discussed this. Before Lazarus died, they would have been sitting there at Lazarus' bedside saying, if Jesus shows up, he's going to take care of this. If Jesus arrives here, everything is going to be fine. Jesus can heal the sick. We've seen him do it. We know he's done it. It's been witnessed. We have faith in his power. If Jesus comes, it's all going to be better. And then Lazarus died, and guess what they would have said? If Jesus had been here, if only this had happened, then this would not have happened. And both of them have discussed this. I'm sure that this has been the topic of conversation at more than one meal as they have sat around in the last four days talking with their comforters and their consolers. They would have been discussing this. If Jesus had been here, Lazarus would have died. So when they both see Jesus for the first time, would they both say the same thing? Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Now some people see in Martha's words there a slight rebuke to Jesus. Lord, if only you had been here. Implying what? You were wrong in delaying two days. Had you showed up, my brother would not have died. I don't think this is a rebuke on Martha's part. Here's what I think it is. I actually think it's a very faith-filled statement, not a rebuke at all. What she is simply saying is, Lord, I am convinced of your miracle-working ability. And I know that in the providence of God, had it turned out differently that you had been here at that point in time, you could have done something about this. But as it is, even now, even though my brother is dead, that's verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So had it turned out differently in the providence of God, I believe that you could have healed him. But now here we are, and it didn't turn out that way. And so even now, whatever you ask of God, I know that he will give you. It's not a rebuke. She's actually expressing great faith in Jesus' ability to heal the sick. Notice that she doesn't say, Lord, had you not delayed, my brother would still be here. She doesn't say that. She doesn't rebuke or criticize his desire to stay away or his decision to stay away at all. She just simply says, this has happened. Had it been differently, I am convinced that you could have done something, but now it's too late. It's a, it's a faith-filled statement. And then she says, even now, even though Lazarus is dead, Lord, I am convinced that you are still a miracle-working Son of God. 
You're still a Messiah. You still have the ability to do anything that God grants you the ability to do. And, and the death of my brother has not changed or altered my faith in you whatsoever. You know how many people lose their faith in God and their faith in Christ, supposed faith in God and supposed faith in Christ, because of something horrible that happens? Martha's not in that camp. This is genuine faith, where she says, Lord, even though you have allowed this to happen, even now, I still believe in you. This tragedy has not affected at all my confident faith that you are who you claim to be. That is her statement of faith. Now, even though there is faith in those words, there's also a couple hints of unbelief. Did you pick them up? First of all, did she really believe that he needed to be present in order to heal Lazarus? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did she really believe he needed to be present? Did she not remember the nobleman's son from chapter 4? I mean, she wasn't there, but certainly she had heard of occasions when Jesus healed, and he simply healed by word at a distance. Did he really need to be present? Did she think that he needed to be present? And second, did she really think that it's too late now, even though Lazarus has already died? Had you been here, you could have done something, but now it's too late. So there is in her statement tremendous faith and at the same time some blind spots and some unbelief. And this is the case for all of us as Christians, I am sure. I think I can speak for you when I say of myself that present in my own heart, oftentimes there are two things going on. There is an indomitable faith that God is able. And yet that indomitable faith is somehow perverted and corrupted by a weakness in my faith that pollutes everything that I do in indomitable faith. Do you have that in your heart? You find yourself saying like the man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe this is possible, but yet do I really believe this is possible? Let me give you some examples. I pray for the salvation of our president because I desperately want God to save him. Do I believe that God can save him? Yeah, oh yeah. Do I think things would be different if he was a Christian? Oh, I definitely do. Do I believe that God has the ability to save him? I do. Do I want God to save him? I desperately do. And then I pray for his salvation. And then I have this conversation with myself. Which is never a good idea. But I have this conversation with myself. And I say to myself, Self, do you really believe that God is going to save the President of the United States? I believe that he can. Do I believe that he's going to? Do I believe that he will? I'm not even going to answer that. And then I, and then I pray for revival in our nation. I want a Nineveh-style revival. I want the church to be purified and preaching to return to its place of supremacy in the pulpits across this land and for God to do a work in turning the hearts of people to Him so that people get saved en masse. I want to see cities saved. I would love to have that. So I pray for revival in our nation because the gospel is the only hope for this nation or for any nation. And so I pray that the Word of God would increase and that people would turn to God and their hearts would be melted. And then I have to ask myself, do I really believe that God is going to bring revival to America? Do I believe He can? I believe he can. We haven't reached the point of being in Nineveh yet, so I believe that God can do that. I believe that God can do it for cities that are beyond as wicked and depraved as Nineveh was. Do I believe that he will? I'll tell you this, I believe that the only thing that is going to wake up this nation from its self-destructive slumber is a revival amongst people. That's it. Other than that, we're done. Do I believe God can? I do. Do I believe he will? See, that's my indomitable faith. And it's polluted by what? These shadows of unbelief that just say, I, I pray for this, but I really, do I really believe this? That's what's going on in Mary's heart. And so what is Jesus' response to her? Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now what he says and what she thinks he says are two entirely different things. Now we know the end of the story, so we know what he's saying. He is saying, and he's couching it a little, uh, 
um, mysteriously, he's hiding the true meaning for just a moment, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in order to draw out from her a confession of belief or trust in his ability to do this. But he says, your brother will rise again. Now what she thinks he is talking about is not a resurrection right there at the tomb that day. She thinks he is describing the resurrection on the last day at the end of time, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, however that cashes out, the resurrection of all men. She believes that there's going to come a time when Jesus will speak the word or God will speak the word and all of the dead will come forth. And she believes that Lazarus will partake in the resurrection of the righteous. That is the Jewish hope from the Old Testament, by the way. And there are passages in the Old Testament that teach a bodily resurrection for all men. Let me give you a couple of them. Job 19, which, by the way, this is the earliest recorded confession of a belief in bodily resurrection in all of Scripture. The book of Job being the first book ever written in our Bibles. And Job says in Job 19, verses 25 and 27, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. That's what Job said. What a grand confession. I believe that though my flesh, this, be destroyed, I will see my Redeemer take His stand on this earth with my eyes. These eyes which will rot away and deteriorate and perish, this very body will see my Redeemer take His stand on the earth. That's Job's confession. And then what does Job say in response to that confession? My heart faints within me. I don't even know how to take that in. In Psalm 16, which we read earlier, David's belief in bodily resurrection caused him to confess and to prophesy. In Psalm 16.10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And David, of course, was speaking of Christ prophetically, but he was also speaking of himself ultimately. He, as being God's anointed or Holy One, himself would not suffer decay ultimately. His body will not ultimately perish decay forever, but God will raise him up. And God will give us a glorified body. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you will lie in the dust, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Bodily resurrection. Daniel 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Some will be raised to everlasting life, some will be raised, resurrected in a body fit for everlasting destruction and contempt. Both get a physical body, the righteous and the wicked. Everybody spends eternity in a physical body. Some bodies are fit for everlasting joy and delight and pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. Some bodies are fit to be destroyed, to be annihilated, to be punished, and to have the wrath of God poured out of them for all of eternity, forever, without ever being annihilated. Everybody gets a body. Some, it is a glorified body. Others, it is a body fit for destruction. But everybody gets a body. And Martha, sorry, not Martha, the disciples had heard Jesus talk about his own role in that resurrection back in John chapter 5, verse 25. Listen, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to an everlasting, to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. 
And then the bread of life discourse in chapter 6, three times Jesus speaks of raising up his people on the last day. 639, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Three times in that one paragraph, Jesus talks about raising his people up on the last day. So when Martha in chapter 11, verse 23 24 says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What is she describing? The standard Old Testament Jewish hope that there is some point in the future when God will raise all men and the righteous will participate in the resurrection of the righteous for eternal life, joy everlasting at the right hand of God where there are joys and pleasures forevermore. So she's looking way beyond this and saying, I believe this, I know this, and this is where my confidence rests. And this, by the way, is the consolation that she would have heard from all of the Jews who had come out of Jerusalem to console her. They would have sat around and they would have talked about this. Lazarus will raise again. There is a resurrection of the righteous. This is our hope. This is what we look forward to. This is what we anticipate. This is the hope that we have beyond the grave. It's the very same thing I preach at a funeral, by the way. That is the hope of Christians, that there is a resurrection of the righteous. By the way, that is why Christians and Jews bury their dead rather than burn their dead. You realize that? There is a theology in burial that is not expressed in cremation. Now, am I saying that cremation is sinful? Not necessarily. But there is something that we are saying theologically when we take a corpse and we put it into the ground. What we are saying is we believe the body is precious and that this body will rise again on the last day. Pagan religions burned their dead. You know why they burned their dead? Because they believed that the highest point of salvation is to be liberated from this body. And to be gone from this body is to be liberated forever from the physical and then to enter into salvation. You know what we believe? that the ultimate highest good for us is not to be liberated from our bodies, but to dwell in our bodies for eternity in a physical heavens and a physical earth. The expression of burying our dead is a confession of our belief in the bodily resurrection of all men. And so we bury the dead rather than burn the dead because we believe in the bodily resurrection of all men. That's the theology behind burial. And that's what she's confessing. And then Jesus says in verse 25, he gets into the, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And that is his that is his great confession of who he is and the implications of that. But now we have just simply set the stage for that grand declaration. Before you can appreciate that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, you have to first be convinced that God is going to raise all men. And once you understand the hope that we have in bodily resurrection, then who does that bodily resurrection? Who is the one who does the raising? Jesus is. Why? Because he himself is the resurrection and the life. To participate by belief in him is to participate in the resurrection of the just and the life that he brings. Now Martha, her statement, I know that my, my brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She is looking forward to that event with great confidence and expectation. But here's where she falls short once again. She falls short in this. She doesn't understand how his, that is Jesus' power, to do that in the future can have anything to do with what she's going through in the present. And our faith does the same thing, right? We can believe God for something that he did in the past. We can believe God for something that he'll do in the future. But then we fail to bring that into the present and say, I believe that he is able to do something in this as well. We are, we are dim-sighted people. We look at all of the miracles that God has already done. We see the power. We believe them. 
We look at all the promises of what he will yet do in the future, and then we fail to realize what that means for us today in the present and to believe him for it. The same one that raised Lazarus from the dead is the same one that will raise you and I to eternal life if you are in Christ Jesus. So that sets the stage for it, and we will continue with that next time we are together in verse 25. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, what a great and grand hope you have given to us. Uh, salvation for us is not to be liberated from these bodies, but to be joined with a new body, a glorified body, a powerful, resurrected, and glorious body for all of eternity. That is the hope that we who are in Christ share together. That is what we look forward to. The death for us is not the end. We can face death with the confidence that we have victory over the grave, not because we are great, not because we are good, not because we are powerful, but we are nothing. And we dwell in bodies of flesh and dust that will return to the dust. But we know and trust a Savior who is himself the resurrection and the life. Thank you for your glorious promises to us. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in you. And Lord, we confess that like Martha, we tend to have belief, but it is mingled with unbelief. Thank you that you show us who you are, that we might trust you and live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you. Increase our faith and increase our love for you and our confidence in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.